Good morning. And happy Father's Day to all those fathers out there. I know uh, fathers sometimes get the short end of the stick for the days and the celebrations. I remember once when I was a little kid, I remember going all out for Mother's Day, and then Dad, Father's Day rolled around, and I kid you not, I got my dad a rock and I painted it. And that was my gift for my dad after going all out for my mom, but he so appreciated it, he hangs on to that rock to this day, uh, but sometimes I think about that. But I can't think about Father's Day without thinking about the ultimate father, and that is God. In Ephesians 3.15, Paul says that he bows his knees before God the Father in prayer. And speaking of God the Father, he says, The Father for whom every family on earth is named. And part of what Paul is saying there is, there's something about God's fatherly attribute that just puts him in that spot above overseeing every family. Of course, he's the creator of us all. And when we think about all that it implies to say that God is a heavenly father, that really is a lot. And it's something that is unique to Christianity. It's something that is unique to what's revealed to us in the Bible. No other religion has this idea of God being this fatherly figure. In fact, father was Jesus' favorite term for God. Again and again in the Gospels, you see Jesus refer to him as God the Father. But today we're going to look at some of these things that make God a Father. What does that really mean? What are some of those attributes? And where do we see those in the Bible? And we're going to apply those things to fatherhood today. And see how even if you had a bad father or no father, even if you had no role model, you can look to God and see how he behaves and seek to be like him. In the first place, we see that our Heavenly Father provides for and protects His children. That was read for us in Psalm 68, verse 5, where it says that our God is a father to the orphans and a protector of widows. That's our God in His holy habitation, the psalmist says. Earlier, David would say in Psalm 27, verse 10, that even when his mother and his father had forsaken him, the Lord would take him in. You see, that's something we see in the very nature of God, that he seeks to take care of his creation. More specifically, he seeks to take care of us as his children. Turning your Bibles with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, and notice verses 15 through 19. Notice again what the psalmist has to say about the Lord there. Psalm 145, verses 15 through 19. And the psalmist, speaking to God, says the following, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And when you go through that description of God, you see these fatherly attributes. He provides for those in his care. He protects those in his care. He's never more than a cry away from coming for help. Of course, we have this obligation, right, to call on him in truth, to fear him. But when we do that, the psalmist says, God will indeed take care of us. And when we look in the New Testament and we say, well, how does this relate to fathers today? We see that godly fathers likewise provide for their own. 
I'm mindful of 1 Timothy 5.8, where Paul in this context discusses the proper treatment of widows in the church. And then he kind of transitions and he says, if there's a man who will not take care of his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. And Paul's point is that there are some widows who are going to the church for help without asking their family for help. And Paul's point is the family's the first stop, right? When you really need help, that's where you go first. But if your family can't help you, then of course the church should help. And he gives some qualifications for that. But Paul's point is the family's the first stop because there are those in the family who have the obligation to help those, to look out for those who may be struggling to take care of themselves. And that could be a woman. A woman could help for that. But Paul speaks here in 1 Timothy 5.8 to men. He places a special emphasis on the men of the house. But where do we get that idea? This idea of God taking, I'm sorry, of men or fathers taking care of those who are their own. That didn't start with men. That didn't start with fathers. When fathers do that, they're emulating the God and father of us all. They're following in the footsteps of the God who is a provider, the God who provides for his own. Psalmist says that part of God's very nature is that he's a father to those without fathers. He's a protector of those who are the most vulnerable, widows and orphans. And some, because of a myriad of circumstances, don't have family to look out for them. But God, even to them, is a father and a protector. Why? Because he cares for his creation. He takes special care of those who don't have anybody else. Psalm 36 verse 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God provides and God protects. And aren't you glad that we have a heavenly Father who provides for us and protects us as his children? He gives us every good and perfect gift, gift James 1.17, as was mentioned in Brother Frank's prayer. It says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow due to change or variation. I'm mindful of Matthew 7, 7 verse through 11. Sorry, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Remember Jesus where he says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it will be given to you or be opened to you. And he says, which of you, if your son asked you for a piece of bread, you would give him a rock? Or which of you, if your son asked you for a fish, would give him a serpent or a scorpion? He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more do you think our Heavenly Father will give good to those who ask of him? You see, God cares. He provides and he protects. Again, 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 and again, especially in the Psalms, we read these descriptions of God as a refuge, as a strong tower of defense from the evil and the pain of the world. He's our Heavenly Father. Jesus says he knows the number of hairs on our head. We're precious in his sight, and he's willing to, even at grace, great personal expense, as we see on the cross, provide for his children. Our Heavenly Father protects and provides for those who are his. When we look in the Bible, the next thing we see is that our Heavenly Father shows compassion to His children. Turn with me to Psalm 103, if you would. Psalm 103, and read verse 13, and notice what the psalmist says there about God. Psalm 103, verse 13. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And depending who our father was, unfortunately this may be a foreign concept to us, but the psalmist is trying to allude to something usually inherent in that relationship between a father and a child. And that is compassion. And the psalmist says the same way a father shows compassion to his child, the Lord shows compassion for his children. There's sometimes an unfortunate cultural, uh, there's an un- unfortunate cultural perception of fathers that they are to be unloving, that they're not compassionate, that they're to be cold and distant. And even sometimes in commercials and movies and just in popular culture at large, that's the way men are portrayed. But this isn't a biblical view of a father. God looks down on us like a father looks down on a small child and treats us with care because he knows our fragility and he knows our weakness. I hope you're still there in Psalm 103. And if you keep reading, notice what the psalmist's point is. Because the Lord looks on us with compassion. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 14. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. The psalmist is saying God has compassion for us because he looks down on us and remembers that we're not like him. God lives forever. God cannot die, cannot fade away, cannot pass away. And imagine what it would be like if he treated us like we were like that. Imagine if he expected us to do the things he could do. Imagine if instead of reaching out to help us when we're at the pit of despair, he says, well, I could pull myself up. You should too. But thankfully, that's not how God looks at us. He shows compassion for us because he remembers our frame. He remembers our weaknesses. And when we go even to the New Testament, we see that godly fathers show compassion for their children. They forgive them. They help them. In the New Testament, fathers are told to not provoke their children to anger. Ephesians 6.4. Colossians 3.21 gives a similar command where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers are to not seek to discourage their children, but to seek to urge them on to love and to good works, to not provoke them to anger if they can stand it. Godly fathers learn from God that compassion and care is important and it's encouraging. And aren't you glad that our Heavenly Father is compassionate? We serve a God who remembers our weaknesses and our fragility and shows us His steadfast love, primarily by sending His Son through whom He atones for our sins. He completely forgives us. He casts our sins to the bottom of the sea, the prophets say. He forgets our iniquities and he remembers them no more, Jeremiah would declare, looking to the new covenant, which we now uh, are in. We do not serve an exacting heavenly father who is eager to punish the slightest slip up and is cold and indifferent toward his children. Instead, we serve a God who, even when we turned our back on him, Even when we disdained his goodness and we spoiled his good name, he will run out to meet us halfway on our return, throw his arms around us, kiss us, clothe us with the best clothes he has to give, and throw us a feast. That's the image Jesus gives of God. 
and the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 20 through 32. Aren't you glad that our Heavenly Father is compassionate? I sure am. Because if he looked down at me and forgot my weaknesses, forgot my flaws, forgot that I'm not like him, I wouldn't be here today. None of us, I don't think, would be. But thankfully, he shows compassion. Our Heavenly Father protects and provides. Our Heavenly Father shows compassion. And our Heavenly Father instructs his children. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Proverbs 2, beginning in verse number 1. And if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 is this advice of Solomon to his son. And then in Proverbs 10, things become a little bit more topical. There isn't as much speech about Solomon, about his son, and it's more generic until you get to some Proverbs written by some other people later in the book. But in Proverbs chapter 2, this is toward the beginning of Solomon's advice to his son. And notice what he has to say by the inspiration of God, verses 1 through 5 of Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, Solomon is trying to instruct his son But this instruction in the way of wisdom has an ultimate purpose. Notice verse 5 there. This is the purpose of Solomon instructing his son. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. That's Solomon's ultimate goal, ultimate hope in giving this advice to his son. It's not just so that his son can be successful in his marriage, or in his work, or whatever it may be. It's so that his son can understand what it means to fear the Lord, and so that his son, his child, will know what it is to understand the knowledge of God. That is, if not the most serious, one of the most serious responsibilities that we see for a father in the Bible, to help their children understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God, to instruct them in the narrow way. In the New Testament, we read about fathers who are told to Bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. And we see again and again in the New Testament that fathers have a responsibility to impart wisdom and knowledge, not just worldly wisdom and knowledge, but the most important wisdom and knowledge there is. The understanding of the fear of the Lord and of the knowledge of the Lord. And when fathers instruct their children in this way, they are emulating their heavenly father. Turn to John chapter 6, if you would. John chapter 6 and verse 45. This was actually read in our Bible class on Wednesday. But in John 6, 45, Jesus is here before this discontented crowd. And he's kind of having this back and forth with them. After miraculously feeding them just with scraps, they have this discussion. And they have this debate. And he says, I'm the bread of life. And They say, wait a second, God already gave our ancestors bread, and Jesus says, and your ancestors are dead. 
And they have this discussion, but in John, 4, sorry, John 6, 45, Jesus tells this crowd, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. And notice what he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus is saying we cannot go to Jesus or have salvation without being instructed by our Heavenly Father. Do you remember in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, when Jesus' disciples are in front of him and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And there's different answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter opens his mouth and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus was getting to this point. Peter didn't learn that by looking around at what the other people were saying. He didn't learn that from uh, the marketplace or the square downtown. He learned that by being taught by God. And the same is true for any of us here today. If we're going to know about Jesus, if we're going to know about salvation, if we're going to know how to live a life pleasing to God, there's only one way to do it, and it's to be taught by God. And aren't you glad that our Heavenly Father instructs us? He doesn't leave us hopeless to wonder how to live life in a way that pleases Him or how to access the untellable riches of Christ. He reveals it all to us in His Word, at least everything we need to know. In the Word of God, we have the very mind of God revealed by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-13. When we look in the Bible, we see that God's instruction is life-giving, soul-saving, and joy-producing. It's more satisfying than honey to a hungry lip. It's more valuable than gold. It's purer than silver refined in a service furnace seven times, the psalmist says. The value of God's word can hardly be estimated or described. And why did he give it to us? Because he cares for us. Because he loves us. Because he wants to show us the way back to him after we've turned our backs. God's given us his word not only for that, but so that we can avoid those pitfalls. So that we can avoid the sin that has wrapped up the world for years and hundreds of years. That's why God has given us his word, because he cares. Because he is our heavenly father. And without God's instruction, we wouldn't know Jesus we wouldn't know how to be saved. We wouldn't know how to live. We wouldn't know why we're here. We wouldn't know where we're going. We would be in the dark, stumbling, falling, and eventually dying. But our Heavenly Father cared enough to instruct us. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that He did. I don't know where I would be without God's instruction. But thankfully, He's reached down and revealed to us His Word. Our Heavenly Father protects and provides. Our Heavenly Father has compassion. Our Heavenly Father instructs. And our Heavenly Father disciplines His children. Turn your Bibles just a few pages over if you're still in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 and look at verses 11 and 12. And see what there Solomon has to say by the inspiration of God. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Again, he's still giving advice to his son. 
And in Proverbs 3, verse 11, he has this little tidbit of advice, and he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Solomon says the Lord reproves or disciplines those whom he loves, just as a father reproves or disciplines the children he loves. In this text and throughout the Proverbs, we have this concept of there being a connection between discipline and love. We have this idea enumerated upon that when a father loves a child, he wants them to be the best they can be. And when discipline is done with the intention of bettering the recipient, discipline shows how much a father loves his child. Sometimes, of course, children don't understand the good in discipline, but the father, hopefully being wise and careful, is doing so for the child's own good. But it's interesting, and I hope you notice in that verse that we're familiar with fathers disciplining their children. We're sometimes less familiar with this idea of the Lord reproving him whom he loves. And this very proverb is cited in the New Testament, trying to encourage Christians on how to view discipline from the Lord. And I hope you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verses 3 through 11. And notice where this very proverb shows up in the New Covenant and what the inspired author of Hebrews has to say about it. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 3. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, the Hebrews author gives Christians an encouragement to keep running the race of faith, to get away from sin, and to think about the cloud of witnesses that we have, and to focus our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And in verse 3, we read, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Quoting the proverb we just read. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And this text really could be a sermon in and of itself. But notice how just as a father disciplines a son, the Lord disciplines those who are his. And while it can be difficult and much ink has been spilled, many debates have been had over what exactly that means, it's clear that there is no biblical doubt that the Lord does discipline those whom he loves. And this discipline doesn't necessarily mean that God is causing the bad in our life, but he may very well use 
the bad in our life and the rough situations in our life to improve us, to teach us much-needed lessons and to cause us to live holier lives. Notice that that's the intention of the discipline in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 10. Indeed, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, James 1.13. Trials create the tested genuineness of our faith more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1.7. Jesus said to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19. And this may seem odd, this may seem out of place, but when we understand that the Lord, who cannot make a mistake, who knows best, who sees things and knows things we could never even grasp, is with our best in his heart and in his mind, trying to reprove us so that we can be who he would have us to be. And it's hard to say, but I think we can be glad, even that our Heavenly Father disciplines us. We can be glad that our God isn't content in us not improving, remaining unholy, or not reaching our spiritual potential. He truly wants what is best for us in the truest sense of the word and is even willing to reprove and discipline us to help us along. It isn't always pleasant, Hebrews author says. It isn't always fun. But when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Heavenly Father cares for us and wants us to be more like Him, we can see where discipline sometimes is required. So our Heavenly Father, He protects and He provides. He protects and He provides. He also is compassionate on His children. He instructs His children. And of course, as we see here, He disciplines His children. And today of all days, being Father's Day, I'm thankful for fathers, those who care, those who nurture, those who instruct those who discipline. We have many godly fathers in this congregation sitting right here before me. Most of all, though, I'm thankful for our Heavenly Father who shows fathers how to be good fathers and is there for us every second of every day. And when we see how our Heavenly Father is, I hope you're thankful not just for Him being how He is, but thankful that we can be His child. And maybe there are some here who, though they're God's child in the sense that they are a human being created in God's image, they're not God's child in a specific spiritual sense. You know, when Jesus was debating some of his Jewish brethren in John chapter 8, they were debating about a couple of different things, but they're saying there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah. And he says to them, you are just like your father, the devil, because he's been lying since the beginning. In fact, when he lies, he's speaking from his own very nature. But notice that Jesus says that their father was the devil. That doesn't mean that they were physically created by the devil. It doesn't mean that on day one, God created some people, or sorry, day six, God created some people, then day seven, Satan created some others. Jesus' point was, by the way they lived their lives, By the way, they denied the instruction of the Lord. It was as if they had become children of the devil. By the way, they chose to lie and to deny the truth. It was as if they become children of the devil. And our Heavenly Father is so good. And to spurn Him and deny Him and to turn away from Him 
And to become, as it were, a child of the devil makes no sense at all. It's hard to even think about once we understand how good God is. But if you haven't been born again into God's family, unfortunately, that's where you stand. But thankfully, God has given us a way to become his child in the truest sense of the word. In a spiritual sense, joining God's family, becoming a part of God's household, experiencing that new birth by water and the Spirit. And when we come to God, forsaking our old ways, believing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, being willing to confess that before men, and when we are immersed in water, we're born again into God's family and become His spiritual child. And having seen how good God is, I hope if you haven't done that, you're itching to do that today. Because to submit fully to our Heavenly Father is the greatest thing you will ever do in your life. It holds riches the tongue can barely recite. It contains blessings that if I were to enumerate them, we'd be here until midnight. Won't you come and be a part of God's family? Maybe you already are. But as you think about your Heavenly Father, you think about how you've let Him down. Remember, He's compassionate. He will forgive you if you will turn to Him. If you need to, right now is the moment to do that. While we stand and while we sing.